Hello About South listeners. We are here in Worcester, Massachusetts, one of the several episodes we've now brought you from the capital of Southern Studies, Worcester, Massachusetts, <laughs> with Tara Bynum, who is a scholar of early American literature, early African American literature, cultural studies. That sounds right. She is a proud Baltimorean. Baltimore. What are y'all? You know, I think it's best to just say Baltimorean. Baltimorean. There, there are other words, but that's that's the best one. I like that because Baltimorean also almost sounds like Oriole. It's like they go together. Oh, nice! I had never thought of it. You know? Yeah. So if it's not Baltimorean, we'll make it Baltimorean. Well, it's mostly Baltimorean. There's just another one that oh, is not. Oh, what's the other one? Baltimoreon, and I don't like oh, that. Oh, that's right? horrible. Ugh. No. Mm-mm. Okay. about conceptions of the South, geography, where it is, early American South stuff, early African American South, and the concept of black pleasure. That's right. I am excited. You and me both. Now, your book is about good feelings and pleasure in early African American literature. That's it. And you do not, your book is not limited to the geographic South, but it's all kind of connected perhaps. It is all connected, and it's all connected by way of religion and Christian faith in particular. So while most of the folks that I am writing about are New England-based, they move, and there's also John Merritt. And John Merritt is decidedly Southern until he gets impressed into the military, ends up in England, Nova Scotia, and almost to Sierra Leone. He doesn't make it. Wow. So to back up for our listeners, who is John Merritt? Who is John Merritt? John Merritt is is eventually a pretty well-established itinerant minister for the Countess of Huntington. Um, He is a Methodist minister, and he publishes a narrative in 1785. He's born in 1755 in New York. His family goes from New York to St. Augustine to Georgia and ultimately to Charleston. Um, And his his narrative is also an ordination sermon into the Methodism that he ultimately preaches I guess a a lot in England and even more in Nova Scotia, a bit in Boston and almost in Sierra Leone, but he dies. So he's important as an early African-American minister, um, writer, and his narrative is published, I think 15 times, um, or there are 15 editions rather of his narrative between 1785 and like maybe the, early 19th century. I'm not exactly sure when. So I think he's the most popular um, 
of the early African-American narratives in terms of the additions. Yeah, so that's that's who John Marin is. And he's important because he's one of the earliest free black, extant, published narratives that we know about. Okay. And I've heard about him before a little bit in Native Studies mm. because he has an interesting time in Charleston, around he Charleston, does. correct? He does. Can you give us a quick overview of how he spends his time in the South? So he learns he learns to read and write in the South, which is, I think, important to note, if only because there's this gross misconception that, that Black people were enslaved and rendered illiterate both in writing and reading always um there's so many reasons that that ends up i think being problematic because it assumes that reading has to happen in formal schools or that you can't lie about reading and writing like who's gonna prove it (laughs) i can't read it's illegal to read and write i can't do it make me read and write there's no way so he learns to read and write in the south um, he's educated there. He also learns to play the violin and the French horn. Becomes very good at both of those things. He learns to dance as well and wallows in what he understands to be sinful iniquity. Hmm. All before the age of 11. Um, that The French horn. The French instrument. horn, the violin, yeah, the that... reading and writing, the iniquity. Sinful iniquity and French horn always go together. They do. They do. And this all happens before he's, I think, about 11 years old. Okay. So I think that's important to note. Timeline is key for John Marin. So he he finds Jesus by way of the famed itinerant minister, George Whitefield, um, and decides that Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior, as one does, and can no longer live with his family. Like he is he is tired of their sinfulness. So at 13, he goes out into what he calls the wilderness. And he eats, I think he eats grass like a horse. So hmm. I imagine on his hands and knees and with his mouth, he sips muddy water. He thanks God for his many traveling mercies. And the wilderness, I should say, is also somewhere outside of Charleston. Where outside of Charleston is is not specified, but he's somewhere between 55 to 84 miles outside of Charleston. And he encounters first an Indian hunter and then a Cherokee village. The Indian hunter teaches him how to speak Cherokee so that when he gets to the Cherokee village and gets imprisoned, he's able to speak to them in their language, which helps with the conversion process. So ultimately his his interaction and the way that he tells the story of his interaction is connected to his ability to convert this Indian Native American Cherokee community at the age of about 15, I think, he converts them. Okay, so he's a oh. 15-year-old kid. Granted, mm-hmm. ideas of childhood are anachronistic. But he's 15. He shows up in this Cherokee village. He can already speak Cherokee. Yeah, and they want to kill him. And then he's like, but wait, my method is preaching. Yes. I, and I'm going to pray the same way that Paul and Silas do in the prison. And I'm going to convince you all that Jesus is Lord. 
And this is all from his autobiography. This is all from the narrative. Okay. And he... Is he successful, according to himself? Oh, he, he is. He, I think, he gets to... And I guess this this is also the pleasurable part. This, he is successful. He converts many. Um, and he, he ultimately leaves this Cherokee village and is dressed in the highest style in the manner of of a king and goes back to Charleston and, and tries to do the same in terms of saving the souls of his family and that community as well. So because his narrative is is published as both a captivity and conversion narrative, it it's also an ordination sermon too. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it does... It does the job of being entertaining, but also saving souls. And it it does the job of letting uh, his Methodist audience know that he knows his Bible very well. And he he knows the way. He knows the way. He knows the way. figure for you in terms of this idea of good feelings you already talked about the reading and writing yeah. but like and a little bit about his ordination as this pleasurable part but what is John Merritt's pleasure John Merritt's pleasure as I am learning to understand it more and more by way of the narrative and he has a journal that chronicles Uh, from 1785 to 1790, just before his death, his pleasure really is ministering the gospel. And I think it's it's important for my book project, which is invested in in pleasure, in part because I think it it remembers the idea that that faith, and in this case, Christian faith, has a has a useful and pleasurable function. So even on the one hand, as he is listing out the many suff- the the many sufferings and trials and tribulations that he has to endure he also is remembering the grace and mercy of god and the way that god imbues him with forms of joy love all those kinds of good feelings that i think are have often neglected in african american literary scholarship as well as i think the the academy's profound distrust of religion and religious faith think neglects the idea that faith does serve a pleasurable function for for believers. I know there's an intro to a book that I often have to engage with and use. I think it's the introduction, I think is by Anthony Penn, where he he mentions the idea that Christianity was just, is often viewed as, as a tool used to to make enslaved persons submissive. And John Merrant, is the guy who is not enslaved and is a true believer. And in that way, I think I think it's important to to think about that as as one engages with his narrative. Instead of looking for resistance of some kind, what would it mean to believe that he loves Jesus as his Lord and Savior? That And that Jesus makes him feel good. It's very literal. Yeah. He's not 
Yeah, because it does seem to be, when you look at this early period, I haven't done any quantitative research on this, but my impression is the preponderance of the research talks about religion as a tool of the planter class to promote enslavement. And of course, white planters did that. Yeah. They went into black communities of people they both owned and otherwise to use religion in that way. But looking at John Merritt, it seems that you're saying allows us to realize, well, no, black people had their own understanding of what their faith was, and they used it to make themselves feel better. Yes. And to not look at that is missing a whole set of ways that people were. Yes. That is not defined by their enslavement. Yes. Because I think or their impression. And John Merritt's not even enslaved. No, John Merritt is not is not enslaved at all. That's the point exactly. Yeah. And he's not even someone that gets free or gets freed. He is Yeah, he's not he's not enslaved and wasn't enslaved. Um but I think that that all of that that you said is is right. I think that to me one of my frustrations with African American, early African American literary criticism has been that it's so committed to agency and resistance that that the the complexity and the 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 nuance maybe of African American experience is kind of limited to the idea of struggle. And while that's certainly one lens that one can use to to make sense of these experiences, I think everyday life is so much more complicated than that. And what would it mean to imagine John Maron's pleasures or Phyllis Wheatley's pleasures or David Walker's pleasures in the midst of what we can all agree is less than ideal circumstances, if not heinous circumstances. Um, And I think that there's, there's a possibility that opens up if we take as a point of, in fact, that John Merritt loves Jesus. Like, how then, how then do we read his narrative? What becomes available to us? Um, and I also think, like, what, what becomes available to, to the other, the African-American, early African-American writers and authors out there um, in the 18th and early 19th centuries? Like, what, how, how then do, how, how then do their texts open up for us? Yeah, because when can you see them using the idea of burden and heinous circumstances as a rhetorical tool, but then they're also humans behind the rhetorical tools. They're humans behind the rhetorical tools. Yes. That seems important. That seems important. Because otherwise you're just dehumanizing all over again. Yes, yes. there's a lot of pressure in Southern studies that we believe the accident of where one is born determines Southern mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. John Merritt perhaps kind of blows that open a little bit. He does. Why is John Merritt important for conceptions of the South? I think that, that he is important for conceptions of the South in part because he reminds us that the South is not a fixed geographic space. So he he certainly reminds me that 
there's many different forms of commerce in the late 18th century that are moving up and down the coast. I, the commerce includes various commodities, human and otherwise. It also includes folks like John Merritt, who, for reasons unknown, has a mother who's like, let's let's head south. Maybe she got tired of the snow. I'm not sure. Um, but I think that he's certainly useful to me because he's an important reminder that that the, the South moves just as much as any other geographic space. And that movement helps inform wherever it is one lands, whether it's to another Southern destination, whether it's to a Northern destination, whether it's overseas. So while maybe you get some additional points, some additional Southern cred for being born in the South, I do think it's important to note that the South is not fixed. It's not bound by literal geography. And then, you know, it doesn't imprison its people into that geographic space and demands that they be Southern, whatever that might mean. You know, a lot of times Southern literature in particular, we imagine that it's a 20th century phenomenon sprung fully from William Faulkner's head. Of course. But if you back up, this makes John Merritt one of the earliest quote-unquote Southern authors that there is. For sure. And he's pulling in Methodism. He's pulling in Native community. He's pulling in preaching. He's African-American. Like, it's all there. It's all there. In the beginning. And his travels. Yeah. a little bit more a little bit earlier but to go back and find moments of pleasure in these early archives what can that teach us today what can that teach us today i think my initial response to this question as i ask it to myself often is black life doesn't suck and i think that that is but in many ways the impetus for this project, you know, I think, you know, in in my alone time, conversations with myself, as I talk to my friends, you know, I realize like it doesn't actually suck to be black. But in scholarship, you would think that it did, or that suffering was the only option. And I in and in the way that I think that you know academics don't always admit to, you know, my my project think in many ways comes out of my own desire to see myself in print you know so it's of course not a memoir but I am it's really I guess I was at some point really struck by the fact that you know nowhere did I see a representation a scholarly representation of black life that felt like something that I could potentially understand or relate to. 
and I don't know that that's always a function of scholarship, but you know, this is just the way my mind was working. Um, and I realized that what I thought was missing was the possibility that black life does not suck. And that in fact, there are many instances where in spite of whatever set of circumstances, whatever time in American history, there's still activities, there's still activities, conversations, whatever it might be that lends itself to the possibility of, of black pleasure, black good feeling. Um, and I think in doing so, there is a recognition of the humanity of black folks, which is important to see full in. range of human emotion yeah the Which full range of human emotion doesn't seem like something you'd have to say no but, but I think, you do i think in scholarship in particular you know i think there is so much more traction for for misery discomfort suffering in the broadest sense and not nearly as much traction for the possibility of pleasure whenever i tell people that i work on african-american pleasure in the 18th century the looks on people's faces it's a shame this is a podcast because i would recreate them because it's all it it's you can do the looks and i'll describe (laughs) (laughs) it's always a look of like i don't understand what you mean oh confusion yes furrowed brow confusion is there ever the pushback where people are like "Mm, you don't want to say that like do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, so there's not that you don't want to ever say that, but it's more, I often find that there, the response is such that I have to be defensive. So like, wait, what, what do you mean? So more than confusion, like a genuine, like, that's impossible. Well, the blackness is always in relation to whiteness and it's always under like the foot of whiteness. And I think that what, what it, what students never understand, and I think what you know, other other folks sometimes don't understand, is that while we can have those conversations, it's also the case that Black people are are producing culturally in these amazing ways, and presumably having fun doing it. So, while on the one hand, there there's a way that we can certainly talk about various forms of poverty, inequities in the justice system. We also, I think, should and must have a conversation that includes the way that those circumstances then yield so much in the way of writing, music, um, dance, art, you know, all all those things that, all those big markers of, of culture as well. So, I think that that bringing up pleasure, interrogating pleasure, is an important way to remember other forms of activity that don't necessarily have white people at the center of them. It's those kinds of moments that I'm interested in that don't 
necessarily put whiteness at the center. And I think when whiteness is not at the center of black life, you can see something else, something a bit more interesting, I would argue. It doesn't have to be that every day black people think about white people. Or that I would imagine that every of... day black people don't think about white yeah, people. Yeah. White people like to imagine that every day black people think about white people. Because it's the it's the arrogance inherent in whiteness, uh, right? Yeah. Like, I can oh, see that. you must think about me all the time. It's like, no. So what would it mean if in scholarship, in in the academy, we we could make that that conversation like public? Like what would it mean to 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 write a scholarly text that is not imagining first whiteness at its center, but instead is locating black black people, the black cultural production kind of at the at the center without necessarily getting kind of bogged down in notions of agency. Because I think that that often leads to the resistance that then has you back at indirectly at, at whiteness but you know like what would it mean to put black people in the center of of the story in charge of making making sense of their own lives in charge of making their own their own meaning and having pleasure as a part of that meaning like something you know uh, yeah i think something magical happens <laughs> Baltimore, yes. I love talking about Baltimore. Is Baltimore a southern city? Oh my goodness. So I think one of the things that I really enjoy about Baltimore is that it is definitely a southern city, but it's also in many ways not a southern city. Um, and I think who, who the folks who think it's South like, are often way north of Baltimore. And of course, those who are in what is considered the South, officially the South, maybe, I don't know. This is where it gets weird, um, are like, no, it's in no way um, Southern. But I think that it's, its tendency is definitely Southern, for sure. I mean, it, it is a city that was in a slave state. And I looked up once why there was no Juneteenth in Maryland. Cause, and I, I thought to myself, well, maybe it wouldn't be Juneteenth, but like January 18th, <laughs> February yeah. 18th. Like, why is there no... Feb-teenth has a different type of ring. Yeah, but still, like, why is there no Feb-teenth? Yeah, okay. You know, so if, if the Emancipation Proclamation drops, was it January one? 1863, I think. So, like, that happens in D.C. Baltimore didn't find out. You know, like, whatever. We yeah. can... Feb 10th. Why is there no Feb 10th? Okay. And there's no Feb 10th because they didn't free the slaves in the state of Maryland. Until when? So, Maryland decides to free its slaves in 1864. Oh. So, obviously, the Emancipation, Pro the Emancipation Proclamation is a flawed document, if only because it's a wartime document. 
and it's a wartime document that is being issued to a part of the country that has decided that it is not a part of the country. So that's so I think in that way there's an interest in like <laughs> Well and it also I don't know. highlights the relationality of all of these things that Baltimore is this relational city. As soon as you say something southern you're presuming that it there's a north counterpart. Or yeah, as soon as you yeah. say something's northern you're presuming there's a south counterpoint. But as a city at the fulcrum of this it challenges all of our distinctions. It does. I mean, I, when I first got to college, I, I, I hadn't necessarily, because I have family that is from the South, the South as imagined by way of the Confederacy, like, I had never thought of my, thought of myself as being from the South because there were places further South, I guess. Um, but I also had never imagined that I was I don't, you know, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. So yeah. I get to college in New York City, and I remember there was a woman who asked me, like, how far it, how, how long it took for me to get back to Baltimore. And I was like, oh, from New York City, it's probably three and a half, four hours. And she was like, it's that close? Oh, I didn't think it would, I, I, I didn't think it would take such a short time to go down south. And I was like, down south? Who's going down south? No like, one's down south. <laughs> right? Down south is what happens when I go past D.C. Like, yeah. I don't... And then the more I said Baltimore, the more down south became a part of my... <laughs> a part of my, um, I guess, a w- geographical awareness. So, suddenly, I was from down south. <laughs> when I went to Auburn, I said I was from North Carolina. People were like, oh, what's it like up north? And I'm like, huh? Like, I just said North Carolina. Like, it doesn't, it's not the same thing. I don't know what it's like up north. I've never been there. <laughs> and there's so much of the country left. You know, I think that that's also what no, is and funny. So it's probably different for people in Baltimore, but it seems like everyone else likes to project onto Baltimore what they need it to be for national and regional fantasy. Oh, right? I think that's right. <laughs> Carolina. Yes, I have family in North And I Carolina. do think that there's probably something very historically real about the movement of people from Eastern Carolinas mm-hmm. to Baltimore. Yes. Like, that is a city that is easy to get to. It is. I mean, relatively, mm-hmm. even pretty early on. And it also means it's easy to get back. If you move from Southern Alabama to Chicago, to get back to Southern Alabama, that is a haul. It is not that close. Baltimore to Eastern North Carolina, Tidewater, Virginia area, that is not that far. No, it's not and far so at all. And so it makes, it's perhaps part of a migration narrative, but it's also part of like a, well, I still want to go home and see people. Yeah. Narrative. For sure. Which has to determine cultural patterns of the city. If we think about John Merritt, people carry the South with them. They definitely... They definitely carry the South with them. And I think that, and I, I wonder if data on this exists. It must maybe somewhere or in some shape or form. But I think most of the most of the folks that I know in Baltimore have some form of a 
migration story. I mean, one half of my family came from Western, Western Maryland to Baltimore. So they didn't actually leave, leave the state. Um, and then the other side, like you said, is from Eastern North Carolina. Um, but yeah, I think that, that those migratory patterns absolutely have informed the culture of Baltimore. I think it's also worth noting that Baltimore and New Orleans um, kind of fight for who had the most free black, um, free black people. That's interesting when you look at The Wire and Treme. Oh, well, see, David Simon is obsessed. He's obsessed. I mean, I, I, when, when Treme came out, I was like, of course she would go to New Orleans, David Simon. That makes perfect sense. I think that what becomes evident if you, if you go back in time and kind of ask questions that are interested in the kind of relationality between the so-called South and the so-called North, like there's, there's so much in the way of a business transaction between the yeah. two. It also has the potential to, to, to the, trouble the, the idea that it is in fact fixed. And I think that there are other cities, not just Baltimore, that represent some kind of borderland yeah, and I don't even think it has to be a borderland. Like, I feel like, I mean, I think Chicago is a great example, right? People move from the deep south to Chicago. Yeah. That changes Chicago. Yeah, I mean, the, the accent for Chicago is yeah southern and then me. Well, and then you have the same thing in L.A. Yeah, you know, I had a, it was funny to me, I had a conversation with a woman from L.A. who, well, she and I were talking about the south, and she kind of felt like she didn't have a real relationship to the South, but I think all of her grandparents were from the South. And I was fascinated by that. Not that you have to feel connected to the land, but there's so many different ways that one's cultural origins manifest themselves. Like, so what did you eat? Or, you know, like when you went over to your grandmother and grandfather's house, like, like, how did they speak? What did they sound like? Are How there did they words tell you that to behave? Yeah. Yeah. Um, did they say don't be ugly in did LA? They say don't be ugly. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I guess those are, are the, the moments of the times that I think are interesting to, to help us imagine, like, basically what Southern looks like outside of the notion of land. This isn't necessarily land, but I grew up under sleeping under quilts that my great grandmother made, and there were so many quilts that I had never used a comforter until I got to college, and almost thought only on people on TV use comforters. Um, fancy TV people. Fancy they had TV. to go buy comforters because they didn't have any quilts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they didn't have so, a grandmother who had made all those quilts. So, and this is my North North, North Carolina grandmother, which is why I bring it up. Um, so there's also, a, like, it's not the dirt, but there are, you know, tons and tons of quilts that make it, make it up, even though she doesn't. So she stays in North Carolina and ends up kind of passing away in North Carolina. But her, her grandkids, my, my father and aunts, like, take her quilts with them. And I, you know, I guess I think about that in terms of meaning, in terms of, you know, on the one hand, I guess just their pure function, like their quilts that are meant to be used. So 
obviously we use them, but I also think that it, that it is yet another way to connect to back home, whatever that that might mean. And I think it's another, like, yeah, yet another manifestation of a South that is not entirely connected to geography. And maybe even a South that is not at the forefront of one's imagination even. So, well, not so, but yet, even if I'm not thinking, oh, we are engaged in Southern cultural practices by sleeping under my Southern great-grandmother's quilts, it's still, it's still present. It's still and even working to layered. mean something. You know, because I know my grand yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. It is working to mean something. Yeah. I, I just got really excited about quilts because I was thinking about one of my favorite quilts of my dad's mother's that I have. And people were surprised I wanted it because the front is a little bit like tacky hot pink. Mm, but nice. it's kind of what appealed to me. But it's starting to wear and yeah. tear in some places. Even before I got it, it was. And you can look under it and you know what's in the quilt? Another quilt. Oh. Because obviously, if you had one quilt wearing out. Yeah, yeah. You just, you you're not going to throw away the quilt. Like, yeah. it makes a better, thicker quilt. Like, you yeah, just yeah. keep putting the things on top of it. Mm-hmm. And I love that. You know? But yeah, I don't yeah. think, it's not like I look at that quilt and think, oh, it's like a southern palimpsest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, not yeah. every time I use it, yeah. is it like... Because I think my grandmother would look at it and be like, wow, Gina, you should really fix this quilt. It's starting to tear up. Yeah. It's time to put another quilt on top of it. Yeah, you know? yeah. But my our close reading brains, I'm like, let me close read. Like, what is happening with this? Yeah, I, I think you're right about there are things that act on us even if we're not over-intellectualizing them. Yes. And those things, like a quilt, can move. Yes. Out of function, not aesthetic form. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they, they work to, you know... And I guess this is the part where scholarly analysis comes in. Like they work to build a, a narrative. Yeah. You know, they 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 help tell a, a family story. They they help tell like a variety of stories. The stories of, you know, the quilter, the stories of those who sleep under the quilts. Um Yeah. And maybe ultimately to to connect one to a particular land. Anyway. I feel like I don't want, I won't end this episode with like, life's like a giant quilt. (laughs) (laughs) We are all stitched together in one happy American story. That's not, I don't think that's what we mean. No, and no, I don't think so at all. I think the, the, the quilt was just a reminder to me that, that Southerness is not always landed or, you know, geographical and that, you know, in thinking about the, the woman from L.A. I mentioned who was like, my family didn't, was Southern, but didn't have any connection and didn't teach me a connection. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there are ways to be connected even if, even if that's not at the forefront of our minds, if only because there's something like a quilt that one sleeps under or a food item that one eats at a particular holiday or whatever it is. And I think that all those bits, even if we are not imagining, work to create the narrative that is ultimately our lives. 
We'd like to thank Tara Bynum for sitting down with us for this conversation. She is an NEH long-term fellow at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, and she's also a visiting assistant professor at the College of Charleston in the Departments of English and African American Studies. We'd also like to thank the Antiquarian Society for allowing us to host this conversation. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Gina Kaysen. Kelly Vines is my co-producer. Music is by Brian Horton. You can buy his music at brianhorton.com. Next week, Kelly and I are talking to Matt Dishinger about Southern drinking. Join us on Friday to raise a glass. Until then, enjoy life's pleasures. <laughs>